Wonderful. Thank you for that song. I started, my wife and I, I think I made mention, I was talking to one of our uh, ladies here tonight that she and her husband are married in, um, I think she said April of 67, and uh, summer of 67 is when my wife and I started out in the ministry and uh, went to this church to be an associate, to an assistant, to a pastor that was a childhood hero of mine and that um, actually as uh, God used him to get the church started in our hometown that we got married in. Nonetheless, uh, I got thrown into a quartet there and uh, <clears throat> the only time I'd ever sung in a special was with my wife. That was the very first time she and I sang together. The year we got married, and it was also the last time we sang together. But <laughs> anyway, and uh, one of the first songs we sang was He Touched Me. So somebody said, well, that's an old song. No, it's in my lifetime for crying out loud. It's only, and, uh, but that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Thank you for that. I love that song. I love it. All right, you know where we are. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John and chapter number four. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to start our reading in such a vitally important verse of this account in verse 15. Uh, I, I'm not sure who was here this morning, who was not, but we <clears throat> began in this um, series that we're going to do through Tuesday night, God willing, about uh, what I call Jesus at work at the well. Jesus at work at the well. And uh, he's definitely, he stops to, it appears, to rest at the uh, Jacob's well there near Sychar, Sychar in Samaria. But we understand that he went right to work. As soon as the disciples went off into town, here comes the lady of uh, Samaria. Jesus encounters her, asks her for water. He knows where she is. And he knows that she has been drinking here and there and trying to find life, trying to find satisfaction and not finding it. He knew that. And so he said, if you would ask me, I would give you that water that if you drink, it'll satisfy you. It will last. It will work. And so they begin in this conversation. And uh, we went this morning down through about verse number 19, I think it was, in this conversation that Jesus had. So we're going to move on in the, uh, in the account, but look in verse number 15. How about we stand for the reading of the Word of God? Unless you need to remain seated for physical reasons, why, let's stand and honor the Word of God and uh, <clears throat> read down through about verse number 29. The woman saith unto him, Sir... Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. So now in her discussion with Jesus, something very compelling is going on in her soul and in her life, very skeptical at the first. The Samaritans having no dealings with the Jews and vice versa. On top of that, he is a man that is a stranger to her. She is a woman. They would normally would have nothing to say to each other except Jesus is doing what Jesus does, caring for sinners. And he encounters her in this conversation. And uh, <clears throat> so verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, we talked about this this morning, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. So Jesus confronted her about her life. Jesus confronted, I'm going to use a bad word. At least it seems to be a bad word in our society and a bad word in pulpits of America. Sin. Jesus confronted her about her sin. She could not drink till she was willing to deal with her sin. No one can until we confess that we are sinners. There's no salvation 
skirting the issue of sin. Salvation from what? Salvation from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin. See? And so Jesus, don't you, don't you appreciate here how gentle he was with her? He didn't jump on her. I, I would love to have heard the tone in which he spoke. And he said, uh, go, go call thy husband, knowing full well where she was and how she was living. She said, I've had five, or Jesus reminded her that he knew she had five husbands living with a man that was not her husband. Verse 19, the woman saith unto him, how dare you? <laughs> nope, nope, something's going on here. Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then goes to this in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. When she said, ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, she means as a Jew, being Jewish. You say that the place where men ought to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus saith unto her, woman, which by the way, that's not bad. She was a woman. It's not a bad thing. I've often, uh, around church ladies, when I was pastoring, if there was the right ones around, I would go, when it's after church and time to go, I would say to my wife, Sandra, I would say, woman, you ready to go? And the women would almost hyperventilate. He, he called her woman. She is. Jesus called his mother woman. As a matter of fact, this is not only not disrespectful, it's a term of affection. It's a term of endearment. See, so I still go home sometimes. I'll walk in the door, make sure she knows I'm there, and I'll holler through the house, woman. She says, man. <laughs> so that's the way it ought to be. There is a difference, you know, no matter what this sick society is saying. And I got to throw this in. It's a pet peeve. She's no guy. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, you guys. Hi, guys. We ate in a restaurant yesterday, and the guy said, guys, 14 times in the first five minutes, and I almost said, I am not with a guy. I, this is not a guy. So anyway, it's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that from me before. But anyway, now let's see. Where were we? Verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. This mountain would be the mount that we know as Mount Gerizim. And that's where the uh, Samaritans would worship. And so where they were at the well of near Sychar, I am told, I haven't done it myself, but I am told you can see Mount Gerizim, which was the place where the Samaritans believed they should worship. And so you can see it from there. So that's why Jesus said, uh, neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem, Mount Zion, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. <clears throat> Listen to this. Ye worship, ye know not what. We, Jews, Know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman Yet no man said, something special was going on here, what seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? They didn't say anything. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith it to the men, 
Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? We're going to stop right there. I can't really wait till tomorrow night to continue, <laughs> continue on. But we're going to, we're going to talk about this uh, portion here tonight with Jesus at the, with the woman at the well <clears throat> and teaching her about true worship. True worship. Father, we pray your blessings now upon our time together. We thank you in Jesus' name for your precious word. What an account this is. Sermon upon sermon upon sermon has been preached from John 4. Songs are written that have John 4 in mind. So much is here. What an amazing account. What grace, what kindness, what love. And I pray, God, that you might help us now that we might understand in a time of real confusion that we might understand what is worship, what is true worship. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work and accomplish your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> Religious confusion is nothing new. Somebody say amen so I don't have to camp here for about a half an hour, religious confusion is nothing at all new. I personally believe that in our day and time, the situation is compounded because of technology. I don't know of a time ever when people have had more opportunity to be, uh, to be exposed to so much heresy. I can remember in the days when cable television started, probably happened when television came on the scene too, there were those that were getting giddy and saying, oh, we can use television as a means of spreading the gospel and doing the work of the Lord. And I remember when cable television came and you was going to have the 24-hour stuff. Oh, brother, has that been a blessing. But anyway, the 24-hour stuff, then there were those that said, oh, we got to get into the cable television. What a time to spread the gospel and then uh, as technology continued to advance and people are so excited because you can live stream and you can do all the things that are available to now through all of these different ways that we may spread the gospel. Now, I am thankful for everybody that is exposed to the truth of the gospel by whatever means it happens. I'm happy about that. If we're not sincere because somebody hears the gospel, the true gospel, and is saved, and if we're, we're not sincere if we're not rejoicing in their salvation. But I don't think anybody could come close to proving that we are therefore better off because of all the technology. I don't think anybody could. In fact, I think it's like so much of human uh, advancement and human efforts and discoveries and such as that, the, these means or media have probably done more harm than good. Now, that's my opinion. I can't prove that. If you don't like it, don't walk out. You can, we can still be friends. But I, I, I am of the persuasion that nobody could prove that all of this technology has made us better. Well, just ask yourself the questions. Are, the, are authentic New Testament churches doing better than before? Is missions work greater than before? Are churches stronger than before? Is the moral condition of our country, yea, our world, better than it was before? I don't think anybody would say yes. And even if they did, I think they'd really be hard-pressed to prove that. Lots of confusion. Lots of confusion. Somebody said, well, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Uh, how about we go to the Scripture? And uh, this isn't a part of my sermon, but since you opened the door, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. That how about we go to the scripture and see, did Jesus leave anything when he ascended back to the Father in heaven? Did he leave anything here whereby his work may be propagated? And he did. And he didn't do it through something called the invisible church. He did it and addressed the last words from heaven were given to the seven churches of Asia Minor who are literal churches that existed at that time but are also representative of the churches of this whole church age. 
And you got to remember that the commission to spread the gospel around the world, to baptize, administer the ordinances, and to carry out the work of the gospel was not given to whatever organization popped up. Jesus gave that specifically to those that would qualify as his churches. Thank you, Pastor. I was going to sit down here and amen myself if I had to, because <laughs> that's the truth. And so there is a lot of confusion, and there has been, and there continues to be confusion. Well, I mentioned all of the confusion because is he dealing with a confused woman or what? Well, he actually is. I mean, just kind of look at how he met her and the conditions of her life. He confronted her about her situation. Five husbands by now uh, forget marriage, living with a man that's not her husband and no doubt in a real, real state of confusion. And some of that is exposed here. And of all the people that you would least expect to bring up the subject of worship, I think it would be this woman. Don't you really think about it? I mean, you look at the condition of her life, and who is it that brings up the subject of worship to none other than Jesus? It is this woman, which kind of tells us that just because somebody may be wallowing in sin, just because they may be in the throes of sin, just because their life may be given over to sin, it doesn't mean that something isn't going on on the inside that says, I know I'm not finding answers where I'm looking. I know there is something because there's no purpose in my life. There's no meaning in my life. There's no peace in my life. There's no gratification in my life, see? And so we can see that even in a woman like this, some things can be going on on the inside that we ought to take the case of Jesus here being aware of that and addressing her about her need. And she brings up the matter in verse number 20, look at this. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that uh, Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now let's stop and talk about this. You know why I want to talk about it? Because the matter of worship is very relevant. Very, very relevant. Uh, a number of years ago, of course, I, I'm talking to the choir here, I'm sure. But a number of years ago, there began this element of, uh, or this movement in, uh, the, under the big umbrella of Christianity that really believes to this day they've discovered praise and worship. And uh, so they talk about worship. And, and generally, they would talk about praise and worship, praise and worship, praise and worship. Well, now, I, I love to preach about praising the Lord. In fact, uh, I think the last time I was here, I taught a Sunday school lesson out of Psalm 113 and the 113th Psalm begins like this. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. I mean, the first verse starts three times saying praise the Lord. And then the second verse says, O bless uh, the name of the Lord, O ye his servants, however it goes there. And the whole verse begins and ends about the matter of praise. Well, that's true with many Psalms. And I, I love to preach about that because to praise the Lord means to acknowledge the honorable characteristics of another. That, that's what it means. And you can do that by expressing gratitude. You can do that by song. You can do that in all manner of way by speaking and talking. And uh, certainly we understand the Lord ought to be praised. The difference between praising man and praising the Lord is vast because we can praise man. I mean, I have biblical grounds to praise my wife. Proverbs 31 that if she's a Proverbs 31 woman, and I thank God that she is, then it's right for her children and her husband to praise her and to rise up and call her blessed and to praise her. Somebody said, we don't praise people. Well, we do, actually. But we don't praise people like we praise God. And here's the difference. Now, I'm not going to point out any of them, but I'm just saying with my wife, well, she's a sinner that had to get saved by grace just like the rest of us. And there are still times, I can't imagine what, but there are still times she has to go to the Lord and get forgiveness. I can't imagine about what. <clears throat> well, anyway, uh, but she still has to go and get forgiveness and, and nurture her walk with the Lord and such as that. But when we talk about praising the Lord, if we are talking about the Lord, there are no qualities. In other words, he has no disfavorable qualities. We may say about somebody, yeah, they're a really good person, but 
But there's nothing you can say about the Lord. He is wonderful. He is righteous. But there's no exception there. He only has favorable qualities. So if we are speaking in truth about God, then we are praising him because there's nothing negative to say. And so I said, well, I've heard people saying negative things about God. They're lying. Come on, friends. They're lying. He is only righteous. He is holy. And he is God. See, and there are no unfavorable. Okay, so, okay, so you hear somebody say, let's get our songbooks or look up on the screens. Nobody said it here, praise the Lord. But I'm just saying, they'll say, and let's stand and worship the Lord together tonight, shall we? Well, is that what the word means? Let's stand and worship the Lord. Or you hear things like this. Don't forget, we've come for the worship service this morning. And don't forget that when we tithe, we are worshiping God. When we put our offering in the offering plate, we are worshiping God. Really? <clears throat> Is that so? Because the word has a definition. Let me give you a little illustration here. <clears throat> uh, have you ever, in your witnessing effort, have you ever talked to anybody and said, oh, I, no, I, I was baptized when I was a baby. And you say to them, you were baptized when you was a baby. Wow. So how'd, how'd that work? Well, they took it to the priest. The priest took water and he sprinkled on me. Or I was baptized when I was 12. Went to a certain church. They uh, sprinkled them or splashed them or whatever they do, whatever the method, and they did that. Well, okay, now let's say they did that. Let's say they've been through that. So that's baptism, right? Yeah, I was baptized. No, I'm sorry, you weren't baptized. Because the word has a definition. It means something. Uh, we're not left to ourselves to be able to define things in the Bible like being baptized. To be baptized means to be immersed. And it is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they didn't sprinkle a little dirt on Jesus and call it burial. He was buried. And when we are baptized, it is in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection, and it can't be by a little splashing of water or sprinkling. Well, that's what it means to me. Okay, so we're all going to take the Bible and say, here's what it means to me. In fact, that's the approach a lot of people are taking. My wife and I, I don't have time to do this, but i got to tell you this part. We've taken vacations. Once in a while, we'll go to a place that we might not normally go just because we want to go to church and not know anybody, you know, somewhere on a vacation. And so we'll, I, we've been in Sunday school classes, and the teacher is like a facilitator. He doesn't get up and teach what the Word of God is. He says, okay, somebody stand and read this verse, and here's the verse they're going to consider the passage that day. And then the class consists of this. What does that mean to you? You know, to, the, to me, this means, uh, and then they start in, and then you're getting some of the weirdest ideas that are not even remotely close to why that passage is in the Bible. And, but that's what it means to me. Really? Is that the way we're supposed to take it? You think that's what Paul meant to Timothy when he said, preach the word? You know what he's supposed to do? Preach the word. In other words, and I, I teach homiletics at our Bible college, so I'm just saying we try to tell our guys we're supposed to find the intent of the biblical writer and then what we're going to preach is what we find in the word of God by study, the intent of the biblical writer because, you know, the intent of the biblical writer is the intent of God. And we're not here to hear this guy take this text and go wandering off. Somebody said, choose a text and depart far from it. What we're supposed to be doing is hearing the Word of God. Yeah. See? And so when we talk about uh, being faithful and loyal to the Bible, then we have to understand baptize means what it means. And I don't care if you're Protestant or Catholic or, or Orthodox or what you might, somebody might be. They have no liberty, no right from the Word of God to make a word try to mean to them what it doesn't mean in the Word of God. Right. What does worship mean? Well, Brother Sam, to me, worship means, not really, I don't mean to be ugly. You think I care what you think worship means? <laughs> no more than you care what I think worship means. Because what I think worship means, if it's not consistent with the Word of God, isn't worth hearing. Is this, did somebody turn this off? Turn that back on, please. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm asking a question. 
Do you really think somebody wants to come to church and hear what the preacher thinks about this or thinks about that? No. Not really. Oh, it might come out once in a while. And if it does, generally you try to make it known like I did to you tonight. I said, this is my opinion about all the confusion that's out here. And if you don't like it, we can disagree on that. But that is an opinion. But this is not an opinion. Right. The matter of worship is not an opinion. My opinion on what constitutes worship means no more than anybody else's opinion. But what it means is what it means. So when uh, the lady brings up the uh, subject here to Jesus and said, now uh, we say that we are to worship over here in this mountain. Or Jesus pointed out that you say that you're to worship in this mountain. In, in this mountain, there is him here where they would have gone about their worship. Uh, their worship of God. You got to remember these people are half Jews, half Assyrian. And so their thinking and their idea about religion and about worship was affected both by their Jewish background and by the pagan background of Assyrians and Syria and such as that. So there was a big mixture of stuff there. Very confusing. And, and uh, so you have all these various ideas. And now you got people that are saying, to me, worship means, well, what does the word mean? Because whatever the word means is what it means. So that if we don't do what the word means, then we may do something we call worship, but by the standard of the Word of God and Jesus' teaching, is it worship? No. no. No, we're not at liberty to go making up all this kind of stuff and, and define words. away. That's why our country's in a mess, redefining history, redefining words, and redefining a whole bunch of stuff. And that's why there's a lot of confusion out here. So let's see what does it mean. <clears throat> Think about it. What does the word mean? Well, you come to verse 20, and she said, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So let me give the definition of worship. You can find this yourself. You look at a good Bible dictionary of almost any kind. You'll find the definition of what we have here is the word worship. And it means this. It means to come low. To come low. It means, um, if, you, if you do a real study on the word, you'll see it means to have all the air knocked out of you. Now think about that one. Somebody's puffed up and they're feeling good about themselves. Like a basketball game I read about the other day. The guys were playing a number 15 seed against a number two seed. The guys that were the number two seed, they're looking at the guys that are number 15 seed. They're all puffed up. They're, they uh, wrote of the kind of swagger they have. And then when the final buzzer went off, all the air went out of them because they lost, which I thought was really funny. That's how carnal I am. I just loved it because I don't like the team that got beat. So I, and, so they, and they had all the air knocked out of them. And there are people that go about and uh, act like I have the answers. I know what I'm doing. And they are act self-sufficient. Let's, let's call it what the Bible calls it. Haughtiness, arrogance, pride, and such as that. Self-sufficiency and on and on and on. And then God does some work and something happens in their life and all the air's knocked out of them. And all of a sudden they're low. I'm thinking about a situation right now with somebody's very dear to us. I shared just very briefly with the pastor today. That's happened in our family of somebody that has kind of been on their own and had an attitude of I don't need this, I don't need that, I don't need anybody, I don't need anything and came to the realization they absolutely do need God. Amen. And they get the air knocked out. It means to come low. It means to kneel. Let's stand and worship. That's funny. The word actually means the opposite. If you look at the definition, if the definition means anything. Now, if everybody's at liberty to make it mean what they want to, that's another story. <laughs> but we're not. And so when we talk about worship, we're talking about coming low. We're talking about humbling ourselves before God. We're talking about uh, coming and humility and in relation to who we are before God, contrition, uh, aware of our sinfulness, 
as opposed to his holiness. You, let, let me just throw this out to you here just a second. Uh, if you look in the Bible and see people that knew they were in the presence of God, it was a fearful thing to them. You know why? Because in the presence of God, they saw how righteous and holy he is and how sinful we really are. And my uh, understanding of the Bible is that the closer we come to God, the more we think of Him and the less we think of ourselves. And the more we become sensitive to our sin. We talk about hypersensitivity in our society today. You know, what we need is a hypersensitivity about our sin. And there are some people that have no sensitivity about their sin at all. They excuse it and everything else. But it has a lot to do with their proximity to God. Because the closer we are to God, the more we are mindful and aware of His absolute holiness and the more we are aware of our sinfulness. See. So here's this lady. and She brings up worship. Now, I'm going to give you two schools of thought on this. Uh, about the lady bringing up worship. Jesus uh, told her that uh, she, she would have to deal with her sin. She uh, was aware of that. And uh, the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You couldn't possibly know what you just made known, that I have been married five times. I've never seen you before. You've never seen me before. I've been married five times, living with a man that's not my husband. Obviously, you're a prophet. <coughs> And then switches to this. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. So one school of thought is that this lady is trying to pull the red herring across the trail here. Or she is trying to get Jesus off the subject of her sin. And so there are some that think she's trying to pull a fast one on Jesus and say, uh, well, uh, uh, let's not talk about my sin. Uh, our father said that in the mountain is the place, uh, uh, this mountain is the place to worship. And the Jews say that you've got to be in Jerusalem. So, okay, now why is she talking about worship? <clears throat> why did she bring that up? And there are some that say, well, she's trying to do this to get Jesus off course about her sin because she didn't want to deal with it and didn't want to face it. That's what some think. You can read commentary, stuff like that. Quite a few people think that. And then some think that she is asking that because she is moved and stirred and is very sincere. Now, I'm going to tell you the position I take, and you can study it out for yourself. But I'm going to take the position that the woman was sincere. And one reason I think she was sincere is because she said already in verse 15, I want to read it again, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, ladies and gentlemen, she had to have a lot going on in her soul and mind to come to that statement right there. At that point, something was taking place in here. Something was going on in her soul. And she said, give me this water that I thirst not because she knew what it was to be thirsty and have no ability to satisfy that thirst. So give me this water that, uh, that uh, neither would I have to come here to draw. And so she asked for that. I think she is myself. I am of the persuasion she is sincere. Here's another reason I think she's sincere. Jesus went with her in the conversation. Now, uh, I, I don't want to get us confused here, but if we went back from chapter 4 to chapter 3, you have that conversation with Nicodemus. May I assure you, Jesus knows how to control a conversation. <laughs> he, uh, you're not going to lead him astray. D did you uh, ever read where the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the religious elders and so forth, they came so that they might catch him in his words? Every time I read that, I think, good luck with that. You don't have a chance. You're not going to catch Jesus in his words. And so let me just say that the master knows how to control a conversation. So she didn't get him off track and get him to talk about worship once he brought up the sin. She was no doubt convicted of her sin and something was going on on the inside. And she is probably saying something like this. How could somebody be wrong that's so right. What do you mean? Well, he said to her when he first met her, if you'd ask of this water, uh, I would give you water that would satisfy you, knowing that she's tried everything and is not satisfied. Yeah. 
And so she's, uh, Jesus said to her, go get your husband. Yeah, well, no, you've had five husbands and you're living with a man that is not your own. How could he know that? In other words, how could he be so right in that and be wrong in what he's saying about worship? See what I'm saying? So she's reasoning this out and she's thinking it out. So I don't think she's trying to change the subject at all. I think this is the subject. What is true? What is genuine worship? The Jews say this and the Samaritans say that. It's sort of like knocking doors now. Baptists say this and Methodists say that. Presbyterians say this and Catholics say that. The Muslims say this and the Hindus say this. People bring that kind of stuff up. And sometimes they bring it up to try to get you off track and get you confused. But you're not going to confuse Jesus. And when she shifted to worship, please, listen to this. When she shifted to worship, he went with her. And if she's trying to draw him off track, believe me, he knows how to control the conversation. <laughs> and he wouldn't have gone with her and gone off of where he meant to be. He is right where he means to be. Can somebody say amen? amen. All right. So let's see what he says. Look down at verse uh, 22. Since she brought up the matter of worship. Now I'm going to come back to verse 21, but we've got to jump down to 22. I want to show you something here. Jesus said to the woman, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Oh, can you believe it? Jesus knew nothing of political correctness. Because <laughs> you know what he actually said? You're wrong, we're right. Can't do that. Well, it's totally unacceptable in our society. Is this right or not? No, no, it's not right, but is it happening? Yeah, it's happening. And Jesus was not playing any kind of a game here. And he said to this woman, uh, lady, you need to understand this that you worship, you know not what. Now, hold on. You know why he would say that? I'll tell you why. Because the Samaritans had no covenant with God, they had no law from God. They had no uh, revelation from God for the way of worship. But Jesus said, and we got to remember that the scripture says, that the oracles of God were given to whom? To the Jews. Read the book of Romans. The oracles of God and Hebrews. The oracles of God were given to the Jews. So Jesus simply saying to her, a matter of fact. You worship, you know not what, because you have nothing from God. God never told them to worship in Mount Gerizim. God never gave them an order of worship about sacrifices, prayers, and offering. God didn't do that with the Samaritans, but he did it with the Jews. And he said, we know what we worship. Now watch this. This is key right here in verse number 20. For salvation is is of the Jews. Now, you can tell, I mean, you can pretty well tell a guy if he's still struggling with English. I mean, I've been working at the English language for all these years, and I still have to ask the question, what's the proper tense here? You know, what shall I use here and there? So I'm not claiming to be an expert at languages. I'm not. But I can read. And they say that uh, this, in this part where Jesus said that salvation is of the Jews, they say that if we had the Textus Receptus, from which we get the King James, if we had the Textus Receptus, you'd see the little mark there that is a definite article where they would say, they would have said it like this, Sal the salvation is of the Jews. The salvation is of the Jews. Now here we have it, salvation is of the Jews. Now come on, we only know there's one way of salvation. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. But with this discussion that was going on, it would have been very, very specific if we were in their language where he would say to her, the salvation is of the Jews. Now she said, we understand that Messiah is going to come. So she understood that having lived close to the Jews, having had some Jewish blood in her, she understood what the Jews were looking for and they were looking for the Messiah. And so were some of the Samaritans that had enough of that in them 
I'm just saying not all of them. It was a hodgepodge of this and that. But there were some of them that fully expected there to be a Messiah that would come. And she said, we know that the Jews say that the Messiah is going to come. So she understood that. And this was going on in her, excuse me. And Jesus said, but you don't know what you worship because you don't have anything from God. But salvation is of the Jews. And this salvation that she was about to take was brought to her by God through the Jews. Some people don't like that. Well, God didn't take an opinion poll to see if people liked it or not. This is the way it is, and this is how he came. He came as a son of Abraham. He came in the tribe of Judah. He came in the lineage of David. I mean, this is how Jesus came to this earth, and after the flesh, he was a Jew. And he said, the salvation is of the Jews. And so what he's saying to her is this, that any kind of worship you do is really just motion and activity. It's not genuine worship because you can't have genuine worship. Well, let's see how he words this. Look up here in verse number 23. Oh, boy. Let's start in verse 22 again. Uh, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the two worshipers shall worship. No, I said start in verse 22, so what did I do? 23, look in 22. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. Now watch this. But the hour cometh, and now is. Stop, stop. What's different about this hour? I'll tell you what's different about this hour. Jesus is here. <laughs> Excuse me. And every step that he takes... He is coming closer to do what he came to do, and that's die for the sins of the whole world. And so he is letting her know this is a unique hour. This is a unique time. And he said, now what's this, verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him, Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what is Jesus doing? He is defining pure, true worship. He is explaining what it is. So here's what he's saying. Lady, the hour has come that the mountain doesn't matter. Whether it's Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans or Mount Zion for the Jews. The mountain doesn't matter. Uh, okay, let's look at another one. God is spirit. And so a mountain doesn't matter to God. And a building doesn't matter to God. And a day doesn't matter to God in relation to worship. Because true worship is not going to have to do with a mountain, a city, or a day. True worship is going to be done in spirit and in truth. Amen. See, that's what he's explaining to her. And uh, let, let me just put it this way. Um, my wife and I have had the privilege to travel around a little bit. And so we've been up in uh, Montreal. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been up there, but the largest Roman Catholic oratory on the North American continent is there in Montreal. It's incredible. It sets on this high mountain that overlooks the... Uh, city of Rome, and it's a St. Joseph Oratory. So when you drive up there, <clears throat> there's a statue of <clears throat> Joseph, however they know what he looked like, but there he is. And then it has this big list of things that, that the saints are supposed to pray to Joseph for, and Joseph will answer those prayers. The St. Joseph Oratory. And... Uh, then from that statue where you learn the prayers that Joseph is designated by somebody that he will answer these prayers, then you have these stairs and these stairs go way up to where the main building is. And so you, go, you can go way up those stairs. Now, I can't remember if we walked up the stairs. I think we did at least part way. Walk up the stairs may have taken a trail. But you can literally see where people have crawled up those stairs and you can see some people that are going up on their hands and knees up those stairs to pray and actually see blood on the, on the stone where they're crawling up there. 
And then they go, uh, when they get to the top, then they go in this large area where they have all kinds of candles. And they have all, all the way from the large candles to very small candles over here. And massive, it's massive. Huge candles over here. And then lesser and lesser and lesser down to the small ones. <clears throat> Somebody said, well, what's that about? <sighs> How much money it costs? Because the big ones take a lot of money and these take less money but they are going to get the money because you don't burn candles without paying the money. So they're burning candles and saying words and going through signs and walking on their knees. And then they go in, there's statues and, art, statues and artwork and idols all over the place. Well, it's not really idols. It's idols all over the place. You can pray to any of them and they'll answer this prayer, that prayer, that prayer, according to them. Now, now I have to tell you, uh, going in there for the very first time, it was eerie, it was weird, and it was void. Nothing, and you know, I try to re I read the Bible four, five, six times a year, and I try to study and preach the Bible, and I try to have a walk with God and everything. Nothing in me said, this is true, this is good. There's no witness of the Holy Spirit that this is right. But interesting thing, here's what surprised me, is we were in Seoul, South Korea. <clears throat> and I was preaching there at a church right in Seoul. And the pastor, Daniel Kim, he took us to uh, the largest Buddhist temple in Korea. And it's right in downtown Seoul. I mean, it's a bustling city of millions. It's just amazing the way people are crammed in there. And we went into that. And I'm going to tell you this. I walked in that Buddhist temple. There's the big Buddha sitting up there. People burning candles, saying prayers, walking on their knees, and doing the very same things there. And the same spirit of deadness was there as in the other. And um, I've got a, I've preached in Utah several times. And i got a pastor friend, uh, he's retired now. But uh, my pastor friend, Jerry Stonehouse, said he went with some of his son's friends one time to a after Sunday afternoon Mormon service just to be neighborly. And just to be friendly, because the boys, uh, Mormon boys, have spent a lot of time at Brother Jerry's house, and their sons were friends. And he said, I went. And he said, Brother Sam, they opened the songbook, they sang songs. And he said, and you'd have to know Brother Jerry Stonehouse, a, a true gentleman, a true kind gentleman. And he said, I have never felt anything so lifeless and dead in my whole life. So... Um, no matter how sincere a person might be, if they bow and they burn candles and they pay money and they make signs to idols and they pray to Mary and Joseph and others of the saints and they pray and they're humbled and they're down on the floor, is that worship? It is but not according to spirit and truth. And Jesus taught that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, and the truth of the matter is, Joseph isn't answering anybody's prayers. Amen. The truth is that Mary's not answering anybody's prayers. Amen. And the truth is the Pope has no authority. None. That's the truth. And the truth is, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Now that's the truth. Amen. And if he is going to be worshipped, God is going to be worshipped, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And there can be no worship of God bypassing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. It cannot happen because he is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father Amen. but by me. See, that's, that's what Jesus is teaching this woman. That there is no worship of God apart from him. If she didn't want to drink of that water and wanted nothing to do with it, but said, I'll still worship God. Well, she could go through the motions, but it won't be according to spirit and truth. Excuse me just a second. 
I don't care if you're a Baptist or what you are. We can do the same thing, go through the motions, and not be worshiping in spirit and in truth because you know what spirit has to do with? It has to do with heart. It, it, it affects our emotion to worship the Lord in spirit. If you, if you ever read uh, Be Fervent in Spirit and everything, when we're talking about worshiping God in spirit, we're talking about this is a part of what we actually do, do. And we are moved by the working of the Holy Spirit in us to humble ourselves and to acknowledge God and to worship Him. Listen, and to acknowledge His worth. That's what you do. You humble before the one who is worthy of worship and you acknowledge the worth of the other. And when we come before God, He is worthy of our worship. Remember when John bowed down and started to... Uh, worship an angel that time twice it happened in the book of the revelation John bowed down he was so moved and he was so stirred by the revelation that the angel had sent to give John in this incredible revelation that is taking place that John was so moved that he fell to worship the angel and the angel said no no you get up I am like you. I'm a servant of God. Angels are ministering spirits to those that are the heirs of salvation. And he said, I'm one of God's messengers and servants like you. You know, you worship God, see. And we worship God in spirit and truth. You can go to a Baptist church. The word is preached. The Bible is preached. The truth is laid out. It's given. Look, anybody in this room can walk down here, kneel right here, and be thinking about their next trip to the Bahamas. And it doesn't mean they worshiped God at all. There are people that can walk down an aisle and bow down. And people say, isn't that wonderful? They're down there bowing. I, well, God knows. I don't know. It's wonderful to see people humbled before God. If in fact it's before God. But it could be that there is sin in their own life that they refuse to acknowledge. And if you refuse to address, refuse to turn from and still go through the motion of coming down here and uttering words but it's not in spirit and in truth. Does everybody listen to this? Now, what Jesus is doing is teaching this woman what true worship is because she's confused. I mean, who wouldn't be coming out of the background that she's come from? Who wouldn't be having sought the path that she has taken to try to find some satisfaction for this thirst that's in her soul, this thirst that's in her life? Who wouldn't be confused? She's confused. She came out of this background where there'd been no revelation. They didn't have the law of God. They didn't have the words of Moses. They didn't have the teaching. They knew of this and they knew of that. And they were descendants of Abraham and all of that kind of thing. Some of them were. But I'm just saying, she didn't know what worship was. So Jesus is defending finding what worship is, and he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Here's what you're hearing today from so many. Can't we just forget doctrine? Can't we just forget doctrine? What? Forget doctrine? Yes, I mean, doctrine can be so divisive. <laughs> I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke with all long suffering and somebody say it. We're, you're amongst friends. With all long suffering and doctrine. And doctrine. We know that all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. For a reproof. You know what doctrine is? Teaching of and about Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, doctrine really doesn't matter. Uh, you didn't come to that conclusion reading the Bible. Not at all. It does matter. And in fact, we tell him, embrace true doctrine or is our worship really in truth? If we believe a lie, are we worshiping in truth? So doctrine matters. Pastor stands up in a good Bible-believing church and teaches doctrinal uh, truth and explains what doctrine is. And there are some people that say, well, I like, I like preaching and everything, but some of that doctrine stuff gets really boring. Well, you got a spiritual problem. That's just all there is to it. You should have love for the truth and want to know and embrace the truth. Because if we don't think right, we don't live right. 
Doctrine has to do with right thinking of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we don't think right about God, we won't live right before God. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. If we don't live, listen, if we don't think right about Jesus and the doctrine of the apostles, look, that's the foundation upon which His New Testament church is built. The doctrine of the apostles is what they were taught by Jesus and what they teach about Jesus. The teachings of and about Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody tell you it doesn't matter. It is essential to worshiping in spirit and in, say it please, truth. Yeah. In spirit and in truth. So Jesus taught this woman. I just want to ask uh, the question. This isn't, I'm not accusing anybody. Come here every two years and accuse anybody of anything. I'm not doing that. But how is your worship? I can notice a pastor in the past 40 years, it's just got increasingly harder to expect people to humble themselves at the invitation time, which is a great time to worship God when he's spoken to us and our heart has been affected and we want to humble ourselves before him and confess that he's right and we haven't been right and we want to humble ourselves and worship him in spirit and in truth. And get things right and truly acknowledge the worth of God. Come low before Him. I remember preaching on worship at Southwest Baptist Church years ago. Had a family leave the church. You know why? You're trying to make Muslims out of us. What? Because I defined the word worship as bowing or kneeling. Bowing or prostrating oneself to the ground. That's what the word means. And if somebody does that before God, we're teaching them the wrong thing. You know, I just came through Revelation here lately. And I'm reading the New Testament through again right now before I go back and do the whole journey. And I noticed that up in heaven, there's more than one occasion when those four beasts around the throne and the 20 and four elders at the throne in their chairs around the throne, read it, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, that when attention is drawn to the Lamb, you know what they do? They fall. Look up the word fall. They don't awkwardly like an old man get down like this. They, they're down. And they worship Him. And they start speaking of His highness and His holiness and His high lofty position and our lowly position. And they worship him. I'm going to submit to you that if he's worship worthy of that kind of worship then, he is no less worthy of that kind of worship now. If you will do it then as a believer, why in the name of common sense wouldn't we do it now? But I'll tell you, I'm going to make a confession. I know you're not a priest, I understand. <laughs> but I'll tell you what really got me, considering this passage, is how weak my worship in personal time was. Well, I can pray and not get down. But if I'm going into his presence, would he not be worthy? that I go down? I mean, I may get to be 85, 90 years old and I can't get down and get up. It's getting to be quite a challenge <laughs> right about now at times. But as long as I can, doesn't he deserve that I bow before him? Doesn't he deserve my worship? I worship him in my own way. Now, the word means something. You're not free to make your own definition of this. None of us are. And when we come before him and we're aware of his presence, isn't being low a good position to be in? And just spend some time. I, I, I love to, oh, I, that, it, that I ever let it slip makes me so angry with myself. But I love to spend that time where I'm not asking him for anything. I'm not appealing to him for anything. I'm just praising him and worshiping him for who he is, his high and lofty nature. Hey. In a moment of worship, I've, I haven't shared this except with my wife.
but in a moments of worship lately, I, was, I had been teaching on the high and lofty nature of God for Sunday school and preaching on it some, and I got to thinking how high and lofty is. He inhabits eternity. Somebody says, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm finite. He inhabits eternity. His glory is above the heavens. He is high above all nations. He dwells, his name is holy, and he dwells in the high and lofty place. Amazing. And here above his creation is this little marble called earth. And here in one little speck is a guy named Sam bowing on the floor in his office, not even feeling like talking out loud and whispering and knowing I'm heard. Whoa. It was an awesome moment. I can be on this planet of 7 billion people being this insignificant place in that little neighborhood in Oklahoma City and kneeling there and commune with God and his spirit bears witness to worship in spirit and truth. And I can but whisper and he hears. That's God, friend. He deserves that. He deserves that. Well, I, I don't know if I want to get in. It's not pride speaking, is it? I'm not accusing. I'm asking a legitimate question. It's not a pride issue, is it? I, don't th- I just don't think I have to get in. You study the word. You study how they did it in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, and Revelation in the future. You study it yourself. You're saying God doesn't deserve that from you? Could we have a pride issue? A lack of humility, a lack of coming before him. And he taught this woman what it meant to worship him in spirit and in truth. And she bought it. So I'm excited about tomorrow night. She bought it. What I mean is she embraced it. She believed it. Became who she was. Father, I pray for the help and the work of your Holy Spirit. There's a line in there. Can I have your attention back up here and we'll finish the prayer? There's a line in there that says that you must worship him in spirit and truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. That, I, I, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for missing that, passing it, but he, the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now here's what came to my mind. You think about it. It's sad that such an one must seek worship. All of God's creation is doing what it's supposed to do before God except man. But God has to seek worship from man. It's sad, isn't it, that God must seek worship? It's wonderful that he does. It's sad that he must. It's wonderful that he does. So, Father, no question. We should know what it is to spend time in worship before you. We should know what it is to come low, not just in a physical posture, but let that demonstrate the condition of our heart before you, the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. I'm not accusing anybody in this room of anything, but I would not apologize for challenging everyone in this room to evaluate their worship. Many people could go to churches across the land, Baptist churches across the land, and we could take an unlearned guest and give them the definition of worship 
and say, so you went to the Sunday morning worship service? Did they worship? Here's the definition. Well, out of 500, looked like four or five might have. What is worship? It must be done spirit and truth and not just go through the motion. We can become pharisaical ourselves. We can become ritualistic ourselves. We can. But the, what you're looking for and what you're seeking is that worship which is in spirit of truth. Or someone recognizing our dependence of our need and our need of you. Someone that according to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is poor in spirit. It comes before the all-sufficient God and pays appropriate homage by bowing, by coming low and acknowledging your high and lofty position. Will it affect our lives? It'll affect our lives if we remember how high you are, how needy we are. Yes, it will. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Thank you for your patience, your long-suffering with us. May there out of this assembly tonight be some who evaluate and maybe come to the conclusion, oh, I go through what is called worship. I don't know if I really do worship or not. This needs to change. This needs to change. So might you work in your people's heart. If there's some that, like this lady, are ignorant of truth and they've never known Jesus as their Savior, they've never drunk of that living water, may they tonight say to the pastor, Sir, can somebody show me how Jesus can be my Savior? I know he's the Messiah. I know he's the Savior. What must I do for him to be my Savior? And let us take the Bible and show them the way of eternal life. May your Holy Ghost work and accomplish your purpose in this room tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?